is going on, true crime fans? I'm your host, Heath. And I'm your host, Daphne. And you're listening to Going West. Thank you so much, everybody, for tuning in today to yet another Friday episode. The holidays are coming up pretty soon, so we hope everybody's staying nice and warm and cozy inside. Yes, and thank you so much, everybody, who bought some merch from us from our Cyber Monday sale. Uh, Thank you guys so much. We love seeing you guys repping our merch on social media. So if you do buy something, you know, we have hats, sweatshirts, tote bags, phone cases, so much stuff. If you do get something, make sure to tag us so we can see because we just love it. Also, we're thinking about coming out with a new winter collection of Going West stuff. We don't know when that's going to happen, but we'll keep you guys posted on that. Yeah, it's about time for that. I keep forgetting. So stay tuned. And today we have a California case for you from the 1980s. It is insane. So I feel like we haven't done a California case in a minute anyway. So let's go. All right, guys. This is episode 154 of Going West. So let's get into it. We've got a very different kind of sponsor for this episode, The Jordan Harbinger Show, a podcast you should definitely check out since you're a fan of high-quality, fascinating podcasts hosted by interesting people. The Jordan Harbinger Show covers such a wide range of topics through weekly interviews with heavy-hitting guests, and there are a ton of episodes that you're going to find interesting. Jordan is super charismatic and well-voiced, so I loved listening to his recent episode with Susan Casey called Unraveling Mysteries in the Ocean's Darkest Depths. It was so creepy and interesting, and he goes across every category with other episodes like Romance Twister, My Mister Once Dated My Sister, or his monthly Skeptical Sunday episodes about controversial topics from crystal healing to cannabis to Ouija boards. There is something for everyone. We really enjoy this show, and we think you will as well. There's just so much here. Check out jordanharbinger.com start for some episode recommendations or search for the Jordan Harbinger show. That's H-A-R-B as in boy, I-N as in Nancy, G-E-R on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, With Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. In December of 1986, a 20-year-old woman left her boyfriend's house and headed home to be with family after the holiday. But she never arrived. After her family searched for her all night, her car was found in a secluded area off the I-15 freeway in San Diego. And with the discovery of her body, an incredibly rare and specific fiber was found on her sweatshirt and it led police to one particular suspect. This is the story of Kara Knott.
Evelyn Knott was born on February 11, 1966, to parents Joyce and Sam Knott in Ventura, California, which, for those who don't know, is a coastal city just one county north from Los Angeles. But Kara actually grew up in a more southern city of El Cajon, California, which is located in San Diego County, alongside her older sisters Cindy and Cheryl and her younger brother John. In the city of El Cajon, Kara attended Valhalla High School, where she ran track, and graduated in 1984. And she then went on to attend San Diego State, so super close by, I'm talking like 15 minutes away from her house. And at San Diego State, Kara began studying to become an elementary school teacher. Kara was described as an artist who loved to draw, an environmentalist who cared about endangered animals, and she even worked at the zoo and quote, someone who always had time for everybody. She had a sunny, bubbly disposition. She was incredibly outgoing and well-liked, and she had a super tight relationship with her parents and her siblings. In late 1986, 20-year-old Kara was in her second year of college at San Diego State, and she was dating a young man named Wayne Batista. They were an absolutely gorgeous couple and were described as the kind of couple who could stop traffic. I mean, they were just great together and they really cared for one another. So it's no shock that when Wayne came down with the flu in December, Kara was right by his side. On the night of December 27, 1986, so just two days after Christmas, Kara ended her two days stay at Wayne's home in Escondido, which is in northern San Diego County, and even called her mom during those two days asking advice about using thermometers and such. And she did this because she knew that her mom would have some sort of knowledge after taking care of four kids. At around 8 p.m. that evening, Kara, who lived with her parents, called her dad Sam, telling him that she was on her way home from Escondido. And just for reference, this drive would have only taken Kara about 40 minutes, so at about 9.45 p.m., nearly two hours later, she still hadn't arrived home, and this was obviously very strange. In what Sam later described as a call to his soul, he had the deepest feeling that something just wasn't right. So he headed out the door and told his wife, Joyce, that he was going to go out looking for their daughter. Joyce spoke with 20-year-old Kara's boyfriend, Wayne, who said that he hadn't spoken to her since she left his house at 8 p.m. So they were all just incredibly confused. Joyce called various hospitals and police departments in the area, just wondering if something had happened, but she was nowhere. And although it was a Saturday and, you know, maybe one could wonder if Kara had gone out with friends, she did say that she was on her way home. And on top of this, her older sister Cindy and Cindy's husband Bill were temporarily living at the Knott's home. And then her other sister Cheryl was also home and their youngest brother John was there because he was spending the holidays at home after being gone at his first year of college. So like everybody was home and she really wanted to spend time with them because she'd been gone for a couple days. So you would assume that if she said, hey, I'm on my way home, I'm coming home, she's probably not going to not come home, right? Well, exactly. And that's why her parents were like, why isn't she here yet? Like she wouldn't have just gone off somewhere else. Yeah, and if she was going to go somewhere else, she probably would have told them. Well, exactly. She definitely would have called them according to her parents. So because of this, and because it had been a couple hours, Kara's family went out searching for her all night. And they decided to search the various roads and freeways that Kara could have taken back from Escondido. And they checked every exit, every nearby park and mini mall, but there was just no sign of her. As the sun started to rise that Sunday morning, Kara's oldest sister, Cindy, and her husband, Bill, 
headed back out searching and decided to exit off of Interstate 15 when they reached just north of the Mira Mesa neighborhood of San Diego, which is known at least today to be an incredibly nice and safe area. The couple had already briefly checked this exit, which was Mercy Road, but they didn't go far because all the roads immediately off the exit were under construction. But they decided to give it another look in the light, and there, in a small dirt cul-de-sac, away from the busy freeway, was Kara's white Volkswagen Bug. Kara wasn't in or near the vehicle at all, and it didn't make sense to them why her car would be there because it was so abandoned and under construction, like it just was a very eerie spot that actually sometimes was referred to as the tombs because of how desolate the area looked under the freeway's bridge. And we did post photos, but to kind of give you a bit of a visual of what it looked like back in 1986, so there's multiple lanes in each direction, obviously like a freeway is, but instead of a barrier between the separate directions, there's this space in the middle of them, which essentially makes two separate highways. Both are situated parallel on numerous tall pillars that look down at the canyons. And this isn't as severe of a drop as you might be picturing, but they are canyons. And then amongst them are also dirt roads with construction. And then Kara's car, hidden from the views of the freeway. So Cindy and Bill immediately called the San Diego Police Department to come out and investigate. And then they called dad, Sam Knott. Sam sped to the scene while police allegedly took about 40 minutes to arrive. But when they did get there, they immediately began looking at Kara's vehicle. Kara's driver's side window was halfway down. Her keys were in the ignition and her purse was placed on the front passenger seat. And this was pretty alarming, especially since Kara was nowhere in sight, and there really was nowhere for her to go from there at all. Police then fanned out and checked this entire area, but it wasn't until an officer went up to the middle of the bridge above and looked down. 65 feet below, he noticed something, and he immediately called for other officers to look. It was clear even from up there that a woman's body lay down in the canyon, just a ways from where Kara's car was found. Other officers rushed to their patrol cars for gloves, and Sam Knott, Kara's dad, knew immediately that they had found his daughter, and she was dead. She was lying on the dirt fully clothed, and her cause of death wasn't immediately clear. But when her autopsy was conducted, a medical examiner determined that she had not been sexually assaulted. But the ligature marks appearing on her neck made it clear that she had died by strangulation via a rope. There was also a strange bruise on her upper right eyebrow and part of her forehead above. This led the examiner to believe that someone had hit her in the head, causing her to lose consciousness. And an officer said that she looked like a frozen Milky Way that had been slammed against a table, which is... Oh my God, that's, that's such a brutal way to describe someone. I know, but like a frozen Milky Way, like that's kind of hard to pick. I don't know what that would look like, you know? It, it kind of just leaves me to believe that maybe there wasn't too much damage from the fall itself since they believe that she was indeed dumped off the freeway's bridge, which leads me to a bunch of other questions because, you know, highways in busy cities like San Diego which this time it hosted over 2 million people, this time meaning in 1986. You know, freeways like that have cars at all hours of the day and night. So how this would have been done without anyone seeing is kind of interesting. Yeah, very interesting to me. Yeah, because busy freeways like that, I mean, you, you really can't get away with something like that. No, that's why this is very weird. 
But anyway, so obviously now investigators needed to figure out how this could have happened and what Kara's exact steps were that evening. Luckily, in her car, there was a Chevron gas receipt. And this gas station was located around two miles from where Kara's body and car were found. So investigators headed to that Chevron to question employees and see if anyone remembered seeing her there, since it was just the previous evening that she'd been in. But the employee stated that Kara had come in alone and that she paid to fill up her gas tank and then she left by herself. So this didn't provide much help to what happened to her later, but they carried on with their investigation. So back at the crime scene, they noticed tire marks on the freeway near where Kara's body would have been dumped. And they couldn't immediately be sure if the marks were from a car braking or accelerating, but they photographed and measured the tracks, hoping that they would bring some kind of lead later on. The distance between one wheel's tire track to the other was about 53 inches, which indicated that the car that left the tracks was larger and not Kara's. I actually went out this morning to measure the distance between both of our Jeeps, and they were actually both 53 inches, but, or, you know, between the wheels, but I didn't have like a small car to I test. Know. So. I know. I, I saw you come in earlier. I was like, what are you doing with a tape measure? <laughs> So yeah, it didn't didn't really help, but yeah, definitely a larger vehicle. So investigators believe that Kara had willingly gotten off the freeway exit versus someone moving her car there. Which is interesting because when I originally read this, when we were doing research, I had felt like, oh, somebody obviously planted her car there, but that's not what they were thinking. Right, like they were trying to just hide it down there. I mean, that's what seems to make sense because why would she do that? But we'll get into it now. Yeah, so they started thinking about why she would have done that and their first thought was that it had something to do with her boyfriend, Wayne. But as they knew, she had been at the Chevron station alone. And on top of this, when police questioned Wayne again, as well as his sister, their stories matched up, that Wayne had been sick in bed all night after Kara had left their house. And this story was absolutely huge in the area. It was big in the papers, as well as TV, and even Crime Stoppers did a TV program about her. And they actually reenacted the evening's events that they knew took place. And they just hoped that people would call in with tips. At this time in the area, women were terrified to drive the freeways alone because there was just this huge question mark surrounding what happened to Kara and who had killed her. And that made women feel very vulnerable. So for another segment on Kara Knott, this time for the news, highway safety was highlighted. And on this segment, the San Diego news station had a California highway patrol officer named Craig Pyre give this particular safety lesson. Craig had been on the force for about 13 years and was typically the department's media rep. And he was the officer who worked that area of the freeway. So it was a familiar location for him, making him the perfect person to give these tips to local women. In the video, Officer Craig Pyre states, stay in your vehicle and lock all doors. Even if you have to wait all night, it's better to be in the safety of your vehicle than to try to walk and get assistance. Anything can happen. Being a female, you can be raped, robbed, if you're a male, uh, all the way where you could be killed. He also stated that if someone comes up to your car, like, you know, if your car is broken down, have that person call the California Highway Patrol to help instead of getting their help because you don't know who this person is. And he also mentioned that it's important not to go walking up the highway looking for help. And no matter what, do not get into someone's vehicle, because when you do, you're at their mercy.
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment, no maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volix XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions or if you are allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medications that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, just visit Juvederm.com. As true crime listeners, you're aware of the dangers out there in the world. So why not keep your home as safe and secure as possible? Daphne and I do this by using Simply Safe For award-winning security and peace of mind wherever your summer plans take you. When we get ready for our summer trips this year, I will feel so much better about leaving the house knowing that Simply Safe has our back, just freeing me from my constant anxieties. And also something I love is that their system blankets your entire home in protection from break-ins to fires to floods. And with indoor and outdoor cameras to choose from, you will feel safe any time of day or night. And Simply Safe is backed by 24-7 professional monitoring agents to help stop crimes in real time. Which is part of why they were named the best home security system of 2024. Simply Safe has given us and so many listeners real peace of mind, and we want you to have it too. Right now, get 20% off of any new Simply Safe system with fast protect monitoring at simplysafe.com slash going west. There's no safe like Simply Safe. I know all of you guys love listening to thrilling stories, so why not check out some thriller audiobooks on Audible? That is all I've been doing lately when I'm cooking, cleaning, or driving, because Audible includes an incredible selection of audiobooks across every genre. 
And they have thousands of podcasts from popular favorites like ours that you guys can listen to. As an Audible member, you can choose one title a month to keep from their entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. And on top of that, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. With Audible, the time is now more than ever to embrace the breathtaking, sinister, and shocking tales that have enthralled you, especially with brand new exclusive thrillers from best-selling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. And I am very much gripped in the audiobook that I'm listening to now on Audible of The Drowning Woman. It is so good. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500. That's audible.com slash going west or text going west to 500 500. Before the break, we discussed tips from Officer Craig Pyre and how he mentioned not to get into someone's vehicle when you're looking for help on the road, because then you're at their mercy. And weirdly enough, as women save this advice for a rainy day, so to speak, Crime Stoppers and even Kara's father Sam Knott began getting calls from local women who had some pretty strange encounters. They all stated that they had been stopped by a CHP officer which is a California Highway Patrol officer who instructed them to exit at Mercy Road, the same exit where Kara's car and body had been found. Many of these women reported that the CHP officer got into the passenger seat of their cars and asked them questions, many of which were highly inappropriate sexual questions. Now this is really, really, really fucking weird. Some were detained in their cars for up to an hour and a half as random questioning and even what was described as general chit-chat went on. And almost all the women who reported this drove small cars, and many of them even reportedly resembled Kara, some driving her exact same vehicle, a Volkswagen Bug. This is such a disturbing thing to happen, because you think, you know, you're getting pulled over, something's wrong, you know, I was speeding, my taillight's out, whatever. And then this officer instructs you to get off the highway to this extremely desolate area, and then gets into your car and starts asking you super inappropriate questions. And, you know, this is the police. So what are you supposed to do? You can't just be like, get out of my car. I got to go, you know? Yeah, exactly. And you would assume that this officer would be patrolling that particular area and that these women would be able to identify that officer. Well, luckily, some of them were. And everybody who did said that the officer was Craig Pyre the 36-year-old officer who had been in a local news station safety video. Because of the similarities in these women's stories and Kara's, investigators checked him out. Also, remember, they already believed that Kara had exited the freeway on her own, and this would make sense if she was being pulled over. And as we know, this area of the highway was patrolled by Craig Pyre. So investigators were able to find that Craig had indeed been working the evening that Kara was killed. But when they looked at his logbook, which basically just includes all the shifts, pullovers, and citations, it showed that at the time Kara was believed to have been killed, Craig was multiple miles away writing someone a speeding ticket for going 25 miles over the speed limit. So this was at 9.30 p.m. And the most recent stop he made before that was 8.47 p.m., so like 45 minutes earlier, and then 8.21 p.m., so about 25 minutes earlier, that one was regarding a taillight. Then 7.47 p.m. for speeding, etc. 
and his first ticket of the shift was around 6 p.m. The one written down after the 9.30 speeding ticket was just after 10 p.m. So all the tickets for the evening are super consistent, like within you know 20 to 45 minutes apart, or at least according to the times that he wrote down. We did post a photo of this log book. Apologies for the poor quality. And it's really strange because every citation is written in pencil. You know, there's different categories like where this took place. He usually just puts the street name, um, you know, what the citation is for, what the person's license plate is, what the make of their car is, and one other thing. And there were no errors or erases for any of the log, except the one at 9.30 p.m., It looks like Craig erased the location and the citation reasoning, which was also apparently for speeding, and then he wrote something else. And then the two after this, the the last of the night, weren't erased, they were just like all the others. Also, the spot that her car was found was pretty much exactly 20 minutes and 20 miles from her house, and about exactly the same distance to Wayne's. So this stop is in the middle of her trip. And as we know, she left around 8 p.m. So it's interesting to see in Craig's logbooks that he made a stop. You know, he stopped someone on East 17th Avenue, but no exact location is stated, at 8.21 p.m. for a taillight. And then 25 minutes later, he stopped someone else, you know, allegedly, again, according to this logbook. And we do know that Kara stopped for gas. So this could have added a bit of time to her drive. I know that was a lot of times and going back and forth, but... It's really interesting to look at the log and think about if this could have been done by him. Essentially, the main thing you want to take away from this logbook is that every entry into the logbook looks, you know, clean. Clean, yeah, totally. Yeah, and then there's just this one line that looks like it was erased and then rewritten. It's like a very clear, messy eraser, you know, that dark mark, and then it's written over. So that that was really suspicious, you know? especially because that is the one citation that he supposedly gave that was around the time they believe Kara was killed. Exactly. And stories like this, they just are so terrifying to me because, you know, these are the people who are supposed to protect and serve the public, the community, keep people safe. And then to have someone out there patrolling and antagonizing people, it's just so it's just so scary. Oh, my God. And and we're going to get into more of that later as this story unfolds. But again, if you do want to look at photos, if you want to see beautiful Kara, if you want to see this log book, it's a lot easier to look at than me describing it to you as I just was, which was a super turned around way of saying it. I'm sorry about that. Just go check out our social medias. So even though this log book stated that Officer Craig Pyre was in particular places giving citations at certain times... They wanted to verify all of this and make sure that he could be ruled out. And within a week of Kara's murder, he was questioned. And detectives noticed multiple scratches on his face that seemed pretty suspicious. He also had an injury to his arm, and these injuries were pointing to Craig having been in a fight recently. But Craig's reasoning was that on the previous Saturday, so the night of Kara's murder, he had fallen into a fence at the police station by mistake. But when investigators looked into this, They noticed the fence was up to about 10 feet from where his car typically was, and falling into this fence just didn't add up at all. And what a weird thing to say, like, I fell into a fence, and I hit my face, and then I hurt my arm. And then they look at it, they're like, how could you fall into this fence? Like, what are you talking about? Yeah, I wonder what Craig was doing. Was he drunk? I don't know. Or, you know, he's lying. Yeah, uh, I'm going to go with that. Yeah. So, 
They were all very skeptical about that eraser mark for the 9.30 p.m. citation. It was suddenly looking even worse for his case, but Craig turned over his uniform voluntarily and it was inspected. And crazy enough, as a criminalist examined his uniform, he tested various fibers from it, including a gold fiber from the circular CHP upper arm patch, you know how police officers have that, and he recognized this immediately. So this fiber was extremely particular, and when the criminalist, whose name is John Sims, examined it in a microscope, he remembered seeing this same fiber on a piece of Kara's sweatshirt just days earlier. And when he compared the two to be sure, he was able to make a microscopic match and confirm that they looked to be the very same fiber. But you know, they can just look the same. So they needed to confirm that they had the same makeup. So the fibers were sent off to a lab where a forensic microscopist noticed that both fibers were made of rayon and both were colored with a pigment versus a dye, which even in 1986 was extremely outdated. Like nobody used pigments, everybody used dyes. So as, so that, you know, that comparison is huge, but then as they were studied even deeper, these fibers were an exact match. So again, a fiber found on Kara's sweatshirt and the fiber within the patch that is on Craig's uniform. So obviously, since this was a uniform that was in question, this didn't mean that it was Craig Pyre's specific uniform necessarily, but it could have been anyone's. So they decided to test various other CHP officers' patches, but they were all different, confirming that the fiber found on Kara's clothes had to have come from Craig's uniform. And this is obviously huge, you know, because they can't match it to anybody else at this point. There was also purple fibers found on Craig's work boots, as well as his gun, and these were tested in the same way as the gold fibers and they proved to be an exact match to the fibers that made up Karanot's sweatpants. So what does that tell us? This means that there was definitely cross contact between Craig and Kara, but the fibers were extremely few and far between, which indicated to the criminalist John Sims that their encounter was very, very quick and brief. So investigators looked further into Craig and began inspecting his police cruiser. And after spraying luminol in the trunk, nothing showed up. But then they noticed a piece of yellow rope amongst other items in the car, which stood out to them knowing that Kara had been strangled by a rope. So this distance between the rope's coils was measured against the ligature marks on Kara's neck, and it was a match. Both showed the coils were 7 16ths of an inch. And things just get crazier. So when Kara was found, she was wearing boots, and on one of her boots, was a teeny tiny drop of blood. You know, it being 1986, they didn't have all the DNA testing capabilities that would come years later. So all they could tell about this blood was that it was type AB, the rarest blood type in the US, making it the most desirable blood for plasma donation since less than 1% of the population has AB blood. And guess who had a type AB blood? Craig Pyre. So it's safe to say that at this point, it was more than clear that Craig had something to do with Kara's death. Also, some fellow officers who worked alongside Craig told investigators about his behavior after Kara's murder. For example, he continuously asked the status of the investigation, and he also stated his supposed beliefs that whoever killed her had done it by mistake. And with that, 
On Thursday, January 15, 1987, so nearly three weeks after Kara was killed, 36-year-old Craig Pyre was charged with the first-degree murder of 20-year-old Kara Knott. And let's take a little second to talk about Craig Pyre. Craig Allen Pyre was born on March 16, 1950, and he was allegedly known to be a very reliable officer. He was always the first to answer to a call, and he was that cop that wrote tickets very often, which earned him the tag Hot Pencil, so he's a dick. Anyway, he took his job very seriously. It was known to be the biggest part of who he was, and this was considered a massive shock to his fellow officers. He was married to a woman named Karen, who was his third wife, and after his arrest, she was convinced that her husband was innocent. Karen had also previously been married, and between them, they had three kids, one of which was Karen's, one who was Craig's, and together, a six-month-old daughter. So at this, I mean, by this time, you know, maybe by the time that Kara was killed, his daughter was five months old, and he's just out there, like, pulling women over off of Mercy Road and just sitting with them in their cars, like, harassing them. Yeah, he's a complete turd. And you have your third wife at home with your two kids and then your newborn. Yeah, your infant child. But to investigators, there was no doubt that Craig was the one involved in Kara's murder. And remember earlier when we had mentioned that there were 53-inch wide tire tracks found on the I-15 by the Mercy Road exit? Well, the distance between the wheels of Craig's police cruiser were the exact same width. And also, referencing back to the blow to Kara's upper eyebrow and her forehead, it was very similar to what a police flashlight would do if you were hit with it. So the injuries looked as if she had been hit with this flashlight. Investigators surmised that Craig drew his flashlight and hit her above the eye with an outward swing and then continued to kill her. So we read reports that an employee at the Chevron station saw a CHP officer make a U-turn out of the gas station to go the same direction that Kara went after she exited. And this lines up with police's theories on what happened. We know you guys love a good mystery, especially one with twists and turns. Am I right? This is why you guys are going to love June's journey. Step into the role of June Parker while she tries to uncover the mystery of her sister's murder in the roaring 1920s. In this hidden object mystery game, put your detective skills to the test. While you're on this quest to uncover a scandalous hidden family secret, you can customize your very own luxurious estate island and let your imagination run wild. Daphne and I actually love to play this game together because you can chat with and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. It is truly so much fun. You guys are going to love it. So what do you think? Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. With how busy our schedules are, Heath and I are constantly ordering food and groceries from DoorDash. It just saves us a ton of time when we can't run to the store for ingredients or don't feel like cooking and want delicious takeout instead. But delivery fees can definitely add up, and this is why we have Dash Pass by DoorDash. DashPass is an exclusive membership from DoorDash that gets you unlimited $0 delivery fees on eligible orders. 
as well as member-only deals and discounts. Which is why DashPass is the most affordable way to get anything and everything you need delivered right to your door, and fast, for just $9.99 a month. Which means DoorDash quickly pays for itself in just two orders on average. So whether you order every day or just a couple of times a month, you'll save with DashPass. Open the door to $0 delivery fees and savings you can't get anywhere else. Sign up for DashPass today, only on DoorDash, and get your first 30 days free if you're a new member. Subject to change, terms apply. They believe that Craig saw Kara pumping gas at the Chevron that night sometime after 8 p.m. and then followed her onto the highway. And knowing that his favorite interrogation spot was off the very secluded Mercy Road exit, investigators believe that Craig then used his loudspeaker to tell Kara to pull off the next exit and she did, because he's a cop and she's obviously going to listen. Yeah, she's very trusting, as, you know, most people are. Right. So at some point, both Kara and Craig could have been outside the vehicle when a fight ensued. And this is when Kara hit his face, and then Craig hit Kara in the head with his flashlight. After Kara was unconscious, Craig potentially panicked, knowing that this would destroy his life and career if she later identified him. And it's thought that he then strangled her with the rope that was in his car, put her body on the front hood of his vehicle, and this would avoid, you know, her hair or clothing fibers getting inside his vehicle, then drove to the bridge and dropped her off it, plummeting 65 feet below into the canyon. And I wonder why he would have driven back up, you know, to the highway, risking being seen with a woman apparently, allegedly, possibly on his hood, you know, and then dropped her off the bridge if she was already dead. I'm assuming just because, you know, he's thinking, well, I am in a police car. So, you know, regular people don't often question what police officers are doing on the highway. They're just like, oh, a police officer. If a woman's on your hood? Well, well, was she on his hood partic- well, that's specifically what, or what? I don't know why they think this. I think they think this because she wasn't in the car. I mean, they don't think she was in the car because they sprayed luminol and there was no evidence of her being inside the car, right? So they're like, the, the investigators are surmising that, okay, well, then he must have put her on the hood. I see. I see. That totally makes sense. Yeah. If they didn't find any, I mean, that doesn't mean that she wasn't in there. It just means that they didn't find anything to indicate that she was in there. Right. But it's just interesting to me that they are surmising that she was on top of the hood. And it's like, I, I don't know, <laughs> maybe maybe she would have stayed on top of the hood. To me, I'm like not really getting that. Yeah, that seems a little bit off to me. Especially because it's so risky. If he drives up onto the highway, what if someone's driving next to you and they see a woman on your hood? Right, exactly. So, I, I mean, unless he knew that there weren't really any cars up there and he wanted to try to hide her body which is why he dropped it off the bridge. But I don't know, it's just super weird. I can't really make sense of this. But also remember, this isn't particularly that late. I mean, this is 9.30 p.m. That's true. This is like not late at all. It's not like it's 2 a.m. Exactly. And kind of what I'm taking away from this is that Craig had done this to multiple women previously. Yeah, it was like a game It was like a game, yeah. Each time he was kind of pushing the envelope, seeing what he could get away with. And then I think maybe Kara just was not having any of his shit and he panicked. I have to agree with you. And I, you know, none of the women that came forward reported that he had sexually assaulted them. So I really do think that this was some kind of game, you know, get these young women alone in a secluded area and, you know, they can't leave because you're the police officer. 
and you just ask them questions and some of them are sexual and you're just having fun, which is not okay at all. But I think to him, this was just a fun little game he played, you know, and with Kara, it went too far. But, you know, it's interesting to me because, you know, if he had gotten away with this, would he have done it again? Like, would that be enough for him or would he need to push it even further and continue to kill women? Well, it seems like he did it fairly often. It seems like this was kind of a thing for him. So very disturbing. And this is obviously not to downplay his actions at all, because this is a very disturbed man who used his power in law enforcement for his own desires. And we'll get a little bit more into his character in a bit. But first, we'll discuss the trials. Yes, there's a couple of them. So after his arrest, he denied having anything to do with Kara's murder, but allegedly asked one of the investigators, if I did do it, what will happen to me? The first trial took place in early 1988, just over a year after his arrest, but it resulted in a hung jury. So another trial was scheduled for June of 1988. And Craig's wife, Karen, actually spoke. She read a four-page letter that included, quote, Karen Knott was a gorgeous, vivacious, well-loved young lady. During the trial, I felt the pain her families had to endure, and I'm deeply sorry that she was killed. But my husband was a friendly, vibrant and well-loved person too, and in my heart, I know that you have the wrong man. Craig didn't testify at his own trial and never made a public statement about the case, but he did break down and cry while his wife spoke. And again, I mean, not to downplay his actions or make him out to be innocent, but we just wanted to give you an idea of what both sides looked like here. Because I thought it was really interesting that his wife is like defending him till the end and even speaking during the trial saying, you've got the wrong man after all of this evidence is being presented. Like, what do you mean they have the wrong man? Yeah, and I mean, sometimes you just really don't know somebody. Exactly. And we briefly mentioned earlier how, you know, it seemed odd that no one would have seen this pullover happen if Craig did pull Kara over and that's how it all occurred. But a milkman named Robert Calderwood was called to the stand where he testified that on the night Kara was killed, He saw a CHP patrol car stop a light-colored Volkswagen Bug on the Mercy Road off-ramp. Then a woman named Michelle Martin, who was a former security guard, testified saying she saw Craig Pyre specifically stop a light blue Volkswagen at that same off-ramp. So she directly placed Craig himself at the scene. I couldn't find if they knew each other or she just knew him from TV, but either way, she felt confident that it was him. But Craig's defense attorney, of course, tried to poke holes in both these stories and called the witnesses liars. And unfortunately, we really don't know, you know, if they are lying or if they're telling the truth. I mean, we have no way to back up their claims because it's just what they saw. It's just their word. But if what they said was true, it would make a huge difference in this case. A man outside the courthouse stated that he drove there every day from Riverside, California, and that he was Craig's cousin. He told a reporter that Craig used to kill animals when he was a kid. Now, obviously, this doesn't mean that he's a killer, but uh, that's definitely a tendency of serial killers. Not that he's a serial killer, but, you know, also this can't be confirmed, and it's unknown why this man would say that. But either way, it seemed like he was trying to get attention. 23 women testified regarding being stopped by Craig, explaining in detail the questions that he would ask them and how uncomfortable and frightened they were by this entire situation. 
Which I'm so glad that, you know, they were there to tell their side of the story because that really, I mean, 23 women saying, this man stopped me. He sat in the passenger seat of my car. He asked me sexual questions. This is a big piece of the case. It kind of really, I mean, really shows his character. Yeah, I mean, in my opinion, this just proves without a doubt. And just a little side note, I didn't know where to piece this in, so I'm just going to say it now. It's just a really sweet little add-on. So one of Kara's good friends, she had a baby in 1988, so just before this trial occurred. And by the time this trial did occur, her baby was seven weeks old, and she brought her to the courthouse, and she named her Kara after Kara Knott. So I thought that was really sweet that she was, like, carrying Kara's name forward. That is seriously incredibly sweet. So let's get back to the trial here. And of course, all the physical evidence that we discussed in this episode was presented in court. And this time around in June of 1988, a year and a half after Kara's murder, 38-year-old Craig Pyre was found guilty of Kara's first-degree murder. He was sentenced to 25 years to life in prison. And what's really crazy is that shortly after this trial, there were numerous reports of incidents where female drivers wouldn't pull over when a police officer had their lights on behind them. So this case actually really scared people. Kara's entire family was horrified by the entire series of events. And of course, you know, the fact that Kara was killed by someone who was supposed to be a trusted and responsible member of society. And Sam Nott in particular really saw the flaws of the system here and how they led to his daughter's murder. And then, you know, the two agonizing trials. So he began to write letters to various police chiefs, as well as the president, advocating for crime victims and trying to get law enforcement to devise a plan that would monitor the locations of their officers at all times. After Kara's death, the Knots created a memorial garden that flourished with flowers and oak trees in honor of Kara under the bridge where she died. And later, this bridge was renamed the Kara Knot Memorial Highway. Her father, Sam, would visit the memorial pretty often to attend to the garden as well as just visit his daughter. But on December 2nd, 2000, so almost exactly 14 years after Kara's murder, while he was visiting the site, Sam suffered a fatal heart attack and passed away just a short distance away from where Kara's body was found. Craig Pyre continued to claim his innocence and attempted to appeal his conviction, which was denied. In 2004, so about 16 years after his sentencing, new DNA testing was available that could identify the person behind the blood droplet that was found on Kara's shoe. So Craig was asked if he would give up his DNA so it could be tested against the blood found on the shoe, which could help exonerate him if it weren't a match. And Craig declined the offer and refused to give his DNA, and he wouldn't explain why, and this helped in the case against him regarding parole in 2008. Like, he was denied parole because of his lack of remorse for the crime and the fact that he maintained his innocence, but wouldn't explain why he didn't want to give up his DNA. Craig was denied parole once again in 2012, and his next eligibility will be in January of 2027. So that'll be when he's, like, in his late 70s. I just, I mean, that, that says it all. Like, I don't care what anybody says. That says it freaking all. If you have a chance to exonerate yourself, by giving your DNA and you're like, nah, I don't want to do it. It's because you know that that's your blood. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree with you. But just, you know, on top, besides that, 
I mean, already, just of, with the evidence yeah, we already yeah, have, yeah. This I mean, man we're talking did about, it. We're talking about all the evidence that was compiled through this entire thing. Like, you've got, you know, the 23 women. You've got the fibers from uh, his... Patch. His, yeah, his, uh, the patch from his uniform. Like, just all of these things adding up. And then you actually have witnesses saying that they saw him there. It's There's no doubt in my mind that he did it, but I think just the whole thing of his wife saying, you've got the wrong man. Like, he's amazing, basically. And then for him to say, no, nah, I don't want to give my DNA, even though this could literally get me out of prison very soon, it's because you're guilty. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I understand where Karen Pyre is coming from. She, this is her husband. She's been with him for a while. Like, but at the same time, like, you have to look at all the evidence. I mean, it's just so clear. It's undeniable. But there was a big scare in August of 2020 that due to COVID-19 concerns, Craig Pyre would be released early. So throughout his time in prison, he hasn't been known to cause any trouble, and he's worked as an electrician at the California Men's Colony, which is amongst the beautiful rolling hills of San Luis Obispo. Other than this, though, he falls under the category of high-risk medical. And because his sentencing includes the possibility of parole and the fact that he was assessed as a low risk for violence, they were considering releasing him. So obviously, Kara's family fought this hard. And up to this point, the Department of Corrections has no plans to expedite the release of Craig Pyre. so much everybody for listening to this episode of going west yes thank you guys so much for listening to this friday episode of going west and next week we'll have a case for you guys on tuesday and then another one for you on friday we definitely encourage you guys to go look at all the photos of this case go look at kara she was just absolutely beautiful she seemed truly amazing and it's really sad because she was just going home from helping her boyfriend who was sick and this is what happens to her so sad and especially terrifying that it was done to her by someone who you're supposed to trust. And man, it's just such a scary situation. Yeah, somebody's job that is to protect and to serve. So thank you guys so much for listening. And if you're all caught up on Going West and you want more content, head on over to patreon.com slash Podcast. Last week, we released our 54th full-length ad-free bonus episode. And so we have 54 for you guys to binge. They're up there. As soon as you join, you get access to all of them and more as they come out, including the two that are coming this month. All right, guys. So for everybody out there in the world, don't be a stranger. Stranger.